Nine for five. 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 Nine for And uh, the main thing, well, the main thing I wanna I wanna start off with a quote um, as the as the main thing for um, this message that I want you to carry through this talk. And the quote is, um, "God helps those who help themselves." And uh, it's a quote that's attributed to Benjamin Franklin, and uh, it goes. It's a it's a sentiment that goes throughout our history. I think the first time it's uh, ever recorded is uh, in the ancient Greeks. Um, Uh, Sophocles, he writes it, and um, I, I I did a bit of Wikipedia about this quote, and um, I, I lifted this, so so take it what you will. Um, to the statement, the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. Fifty three percent of Americans agree strongly. Twenty two percent agree somewhat. Seven percent disagree somewhat. Fourteen percent disagree strongly. Five percent stated they don't know. Of born again Christians, sixty eight percent agreed, and eighty one percent of non born again Christians agreed with this statement. Despite being of non biblical origin, the phrase topped the poll of the most widely known Bible verses. Seventy five percent of American teenagers teenagers said they believed that it was the central message of the Bible. <coughs> so we're going through Luke chapter fifteen. Um, which will contain Jesus's probably his most famous parable uh, in in our modern society today. Um, it's a story where the central theme and message has uh, been repeated throughout history, and depicted in all sorts of art. It's a story that's so simple and pure, resonates with all of us to our very core, um, even in a non-religious setting. A son who rebels against his father, squanders everything, returns. Home in deep shame, and a father who welcomes his wayward son home with a profound love. We all know it's a story about forgiveness and grace, but like all of Jesus' parables, it cuts so much deeper than that. Through this parable, we'll see the nature of humanity, the nature of God, and our relationship、uh, with Him. So, in my past talks I've given, they've always been in three parts, and. Jesus got my back on this one because he tells three parables in、um, chapter fifteen,、um, and it's no coincidence I think that Jesus cho- chooses to tell these three parables back to back:、um, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son.、Uh, and more than once,、um, he employs multiple stories which build upon one another to drive home a central theme to his listeners. In fact, the whole of Luke, I feel, is is this great interplay of of a genius author who,、uh, in his retelling,、uh, reveals to us the themes and spirits of a genius storyteller.、Um, and I really do mean G- Luke is a genius writer. I mean, he's a he's a he's a physician. So I mean, I would know. <laughs>、um, so Dr. Andre Desnitsky, a biblical scholar, he writes. This、uh, Luke's writing is a great literary work written in impeccable Greek, but the primary distinction of this gospel from the others is its literary elegance. Luke combines different styles. Here we see refined Greek prose, poetic hymns, the only in the entire New Testament, grand narrative in the style of the Old Testament, 
and aphoristic sayings. Luke clearly wrote for the discerning and educated Hellenistic public, which did not need to be simply surprised by new ideas, but to have these ideas presented in an elegant form in order for them to listen. So when Luke tells us, Theophilus, one who loves God and is beloved by God, in chapter 1, 3 to 4, I myself have investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. It's a declaration that what is to follow is not just a genealogy and 16 haphazard parables put together. Rather, it's meant to capture the spirit of the good news, the gospel that Jesus came to deliver. So I'd encourage you when you read Luke or any of the books of the Bible to let the word speak for itself and not get too caught up in the nitty gritty of exact words and this exact moment in time. So let's get stuck into the parables. So the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, if anybody has things to turn to, um, it's going to be so 15, starting from the start. So now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So how did we get here? How did we get to this point in the story? So let's begin with a quick recap of what's happened to lead us up to this point. So in chapters one and two of Luke, we're presented with the story of the birth of Jesus. And with that, a divine declaration that's interwoven with Old Testament references throughout that Jesus is the Messiah who will cause the rising and falling of many and ultimately he'll be the one to repair our relationship with God. Then in chapters 3 and 4 we get this kind of manifesto as to what Jesus' mission is going to look like. So in Luke um, chapter 4 from verses uh, 16 to 18 he writes, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So... The year of the Lord's favor, that comes from the law in Leviticus um, 25, where on on the 50th year, slaves are released and debts are canceled. It's a declaration that the poor, the oppressed, the outsiders, they're going to have a home and that the debt of sin, which weighs down on all of us, is going to be paid. That's, That's what he's saying. And then throughout, we get stories of what this looks like in the rest of Luke. So lepers and the lame they get healed the dead are brought back to life tax collectors and prostitutes join jesus's community of disciples and this culminates in jesus attracting a large number of followers of all sorts to whom he lays out what his revolutionary kingdom is going to look like with the last being the first and giving teachings uh, in the forms of parables to these people 
This also attracts the anger and hatred of the religious leaders at the time. So that leads us to this moment where Jesus is accused of welcoming sinners and eating with them as if that's a bad thing. Of course it's a bad thing. I mean, sinners aren't kosher. Tax collectors work for the enemy, the Romans. But to Jesus, there's no separation. To him, we're all sheep of the same flock, belonging to the same shepherd who Jesus declares to be himself. To a shepherd, sheep, they all serve the same function and purpose. There's no difference. And that's why we all kind of look down on the masses in today's culture and we call them the sheep. And it's a derogatory term. So sheep are meant to be dumb. Uh, That's why the shepherd is the one who has to carry them on the back when they're lost. And it's an insight into God. So it's God who brings his people back to him. It's God who searches for people. It's not the other way around. The, the The sheep can't come back by himself. And the lamb that was slain was Jesus. And we find in this parable that it's one sheep that is saved and rejoiced over. It's not the 99 that are in the flock. It's not about the proportion of people, but it's about the joy of finding the lost. And I find that Jesus is pretty funny when he tells to righteous people that they are one of the 99 righteous sheep. And uh, you know, when, you, when you found the key is, um, was repentance, sheep stray people stray but it's a penitent heart that stays and returns to the flock God's flock so then the next parable that's talked about is the parable of the lost coins direct continuation so starting from verse 8 or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one doesn't she light a lamp sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now he talks about something that earthly people understand, money. You ever look for lost money, lost change? Well, you can replace money with anything in your life, really. So any other possession that's been lost, but now you really want it. You'll start looking on the furniture, upending all the clothes like strewn about on the floor of your room. Uh, You'll explore boxes and shelves and things that uh, you don't even remember the last time you, you, you went through any of that stuff. And it's that kind of desperation um, that, that you're searching for these things. And I think it's, it's just a glimpse into how God sees his people. And then we get to the final parable, which is the parable of the prodigal son. And so I guess if you thought the stakes were high when it comes to sheep and money, well, now we're talking about people. I'm going to read the parable now. So from verse 11 to the end. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, 
who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill him. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So there are three people who are presented in this story and I want to give them names. All right. So there's the man who wants to help himself. There's the man who looks down on those that need help. And there's the man who gives unconditional help. So let's start off with the, with the man who wants to help himself, the prodigal son. So this son begins the story by <coughs> asking for his inheritance now. So just think to yourselves, when do you get an inheritance from your parents? You get it when your parents die. That's traditionally when you get your inheritance. So the message is clear here. What the, what the son is actually saying to the father is more than just, you know, I want my things now. It's a declaration that essentially says, I want you out of my life. I want you dead. And that's what our rebellion against God is like. It's a complete separation of our life from his. And what's the father's response to this? I know my response would be... Get stuff. This is all. This is not yours. But the father's response, God's response to our rebellion, is to give us what we want, and that's the nature of that's the nature of us being able to make a choice. It's the nature of our free will, and that's the graciousness of God. And when you separate from God, when you separate from when He separates from the Father, they, He separates entirely. Him, a foreign country, doing what you want when you want. And it's a promise and a narrative of freedom and no control, which hides the real truth, which is really loss of freedom and loss of control. I think of in this situation, I think of 
Um, I think of you know, friends in uni and um, friends in high school, you know, they party hard, drinking, taking drugs night after night, and they only wake up, they wake up you know, only to find themselves with the party over, you know, hungover, completely spent, um, and surrounded by drinking buddies, but no real friends. I think of the recent scandal with um, Jeffrey Epstein, the, the, the billionaire, um, and, um, and, and, and his case where there's lots of high-profile, rich and famous people are implicated, where essentially one sexual freedom, no rules, leads to another and another, and keeps growing until you know, you're caught as a child abuser and you're hanging yourself to escape earthly punishment. And so here you've got a man who wants to help himself and then you find that you know, he, he gets to this point where he finds himself wanting to eat alongside the pigs. In the, at the end of the day, no different than an animal himself. Um, I find that it's rules and understanding of them and an ability to make a choice to carry them out rather than acting purely out of instinct and what you want, which is what separates us from the animals. And then he has the realization that what he had was better than what he has now because nobody he surrounded himself with will help him. He's surrounded by people just like himself. He surrounded himself by people who just want to help themselves, just like how he just wants to help himself. So he returns to the father, uh, but being separated from the father for so long and being with other people like him for so long, he forgets what his father is like. Just like how people have forgotten what God is truly like. Being, so separa- being separated for so long from the father, he does not see himself as his father's son anymore. And he humbles himself before his father as a servant, not like a person who would sit at his father's table. Now we get to the next character, <coughs> which is the man who wants to, the man who helps people unconditionally. And he doesn't see it like this. His response is to run towards his son and embrace him. And when we have this moment with God, we too are like the son. We're caught off guard. We, we don't deserve this. The father's forgiveness doesn't come because the son has cleaned himself back up and is acting right all of a sudden now. It doesn't come because he says or thinks the right thing um, because he clearly doesn't. Uh, it doesn't come because he has rehearsed his he has rehearsed his, um, his confession to his father, which he, which he does. He says, you know, uh, I'm going to say to him, I've sinned against heaven and earth. And then he says that to his father when he comes and greets him. No, it's, uh, it's more than that. Um, it's, it shows us that, you know, that he thinks that he's going to be coming back as a slave. But you find that God's love and the father's love towards his son is actually bigger than that. And it takes the father's forgiveness for the son to begin realizing that himself. You know, it's, it's easy to think in this story that the prodigal son is the reckless one. You know, prodigal meaning that uh, you're spending recklessly. But think about what the father does in return to his son. He, um, he at this point in time, so before this, he's, he's given his part of the inheritance just like that to his son. And uh, when the son comes back, he gives him the best robe. He gives him a ring. He gives him sandals for his feet. 
Who does the best robe belong to in the house? It should belong to the head of the house, the father. The ring, a piece of jewellery, it's a symbol of your status in the family. He gives it to the son. You'll find that in the song, you know, Reckless Love. This is the kind of reckless love that God has for us. Right? And rather than looking over the 99 sheep that he has, he leaves them in the, in the flock and goes after the one that's strayed. That's the true inheritance. And that's what's revolutionary about our God. God promises us a partnership and a share in his kingdom, uh, not for us to be his slaves. But the story doesn't end just here. There's one more character and um, call him the man who looks down on those who need help. So there are two sons, uh, two sons of the father, the prodigal son, the older son. Uh, there's also two characters, there's two factions in, in Luke 15 as well. You've got the tax collector, the religious leaders. You've got two sides of what I think is the same lost coin. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity um, puts it as the animal self and the diabolical self. So quote here. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting. The pleasure of power, of hatred. For, these, for there are two things inside me, competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. So in the gospel, it's clear that the religious leaders at that time, they fulfill this role of the diabolical self and Jesus chastises them accordingly. He gets angry at the religious leaders at the time. He doesn't get angry at the prostitutes or the tax collectors. And you know, do you see any diabolical selves working in our world today? It's common to think that there's just one lost son in this story. But in fact, Two sons leave their father's house in this story. Both are lost in their own way. But it's the son who returns to the father with their arms stretched out with nothing. Not the son with arms stretched out with things to prove their righteousness that can receive the full grace of his father. So the question of the theme that I have for you guys today, uh, who does God help? So I don't think God helps those who help themselves. And I think it's quite the opposite. God helps those who are at their most helpless. Jesus in Luke 15 has good news for both the prodigal sons and the elder sons. So for the prodigal sons, I'm going to quote a Kanye West song. Father, this prayer is for everyone that feels they're not good enough. This prayer is for everybody that feels like they're too messed up. For everyone that feels they've said I'm sorry too many times. You can never go too far where you can't come back home again. And for the eldest sons, if we as children of God, blessed with eyes to see and ears to hear that which prophets and kings wanted but did not, 
then let us be one of the other 99 sheep who faithfully steward one another so that we do not stray as God works to recover our lost brothers and sisters. Let us be a lamp for God as he searches for the lost coin. And let us rejoice when one who, becomes, who was lost becomes found. Let's show forgiveness and graciousness to one another as God has shown to each one of us. For my father's house has many rooms. We shall all get a place at the banquet if we're faithful. Thanks. <clears throat>